John chapter 8. John chapter 8, we're kind of picking up and trying to finish, even though I told you we might not finish today. But uh, the title for this morning's sermon is, Are You Honoring the Son? Are you honoring the Son? John chapter 8, we'll look at verses 48 through the end of the chapter. The apostle John writes this, The Jews answered him, Are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my Father, and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. The Jews said to him, now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets, yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died and the prophets died? Who do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my father who glorifies me, of whom you say, he is our God. But you do not know him. I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, you are not yet 50 years old and you have seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the opportunity to read John 8 this morning and to be encouraged by the words of Christ and the interaction that he had with the Jews and just to try to greater, have a greater understanding of who Christ is and all of his glory and what Christ is teaching in this particular text about if we keep his word, then we will never taste death. And so allow us this morning to learn what you want us to learn so that we can live like you want us to live. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, I don't know about you, but I love driving down the roads here in America and sometimes looking at the various billboards that are advertising different things. And of course, sometimes you got to be careful and turn your eyes from certain billboards that you don't want to see. But it's still kind of neat to me just to see how people try to advertise different things that they're selling and how they try to be as you know, quaint as they can be or as pithy as they can be in a short statement to communicate some important words. Uh, some of the messages are very clever. Uh, some of the messages are somber. And some of the messages that you see on billboards are just plain out funny. One steakhouse had a billboard that read, there's plenty of room for all of God's creatures. And it has this big moose in the great outdoors. And then it says this, right next to the mashed potatoes. <laughs> An Asian buffet had a billboard sign that read, poor English, but great oriental food. A Christian church had a billboard that read, is there life after death? Trespass here and find out. Ooh. Another church billboard read, honk if you love Jesus, text while driving if you want to meet him. <laughs> On a more serious note, one billboard that I heard about recently uh, rises high over Interstate 30 
just east of downtown Dallas. It contains a question and a phone number. Who's the father? Call 1-800-DNA-EXAM. Well, what a commentary on our times. Children born out of wedlock, mothers left wondering who among their sexual partners might have fathered a particular child. They say that DNA testing gives 100% accuracy in paternity tests, and that means there's a 100% match between a mother, a father, and their child. And this should come as no surprise. I mean, you would expect a child to resemble his father and his mother, and now we have DNA testing that can explain why. The genes of the parents are passed down to their children. And in our text this morning, we're going to yet see again the resemblance of God the Father in God the Son. It should come as no surprise that the Son favors the Father. And yet at the same time, it's not as if the Father passed down His genes to the Son because the Son has an eternal existence. Jesus, being fully God, has always been. We're here talking about how the Father and the Son are of the same essence, theologically speaking. It's called homoousius, which is the key term of the Christological doctrine formulated at the First Ecumenical Council at Nicaea in 325 to affirm that God the Son and God the Father are of the same substance. Nevertheless, there is an ongoing description in the Bible between the relationship of God the Father and God the Son. And today we're reminded that to honor God is to honor His Son, Jesus Christ. And in order to truly honor the Son, we must see Him as fully God and as fully man. We must acknowledge the deity of Christ. To honor Jesus, we need not only to recognize who He is, but also to fully obey Him in our lives. In John chapter 8, there's been a lot of back and forth between Jesus and the Jews over who's the Father. The Jews say that Abraham is their father. Jesus says to them, you are of your father, the devil. In fact, in John 8, 23 and 24, Jesus says, you are from below and I am from above. You are of this world and I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins. For unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. At the same time, Jesus gives us great hope when he says in verses 31 and 32, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Well, let me ask you a similar question this morning. Who's your father? If I were to do some spiritual DNA testing, would you resemble your father in heaven? Or would you resemble, as Jesus said to these Jews, your father, the devil? What kind of evidences of grace in your heart and grace in your actions would I see? Would there be the work of the Spirit? Would there be a resemblance to the character and the attributes of God? Are you bearing fruit commiserate with repentance? Can you truly say this morning, Abba, Father? Well, I'd like us to look at three headings today that will help us see if you are truly honoring God's Son, Jesus Christ. And so there in your outline, if you're taking notes this morning, you see that first of three major headings says this, number one, to not recognize Jesus is to dishonor Him. 
And so we're going to be looking at in these next couple of verses that we want to honor the Lord Jesus Christ by honoring Him as being God's Son. And to not recognize Jesus for who He is is to dishonor Him. And we see that in verse 48, your first blank, if you're taking notes this morning, says the ridiculous accusations. The ridiculous accusations. Again, verse 48, the Jews answered Him, are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? And we've got to pause and ask the question, why in the world are these Jews accusing Jesus of being a Samaritan? I mean, we know that the Jews hate the Samaritans, and so are they just convinced that Jesus was born out of sexual immorality? Remember verse 41 that we looked at last time we were together. They said to him, we were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. And so they were accusing the fact that maybe Jesus, since he didn't have a father, Mary became pregnant before her and Joseph were married or had ever been together, that they're making this claim. And so maybe this is a way they're undercutting Jesus by saying, well, maybe he's not a pure Jew. And the Jews claim to be pure in their line and in their connection to Abraham as their father. And the Samaritans were not of a pure race. If you remember, the Jews hated the Samaritans and would not even eat with them or converse with them in public. Why such hatred? Well, turn with me, if you will, to 2 Kings chapter 17. Let's just do a brief review of why the Jews hate the Samaritans so. It was after King Solomon that Israel was split into two nations, in a sense. There were ten tribes to the north called Israel and two tribes to the south called Judah. And the capital of the north was Samaria, and the capital of the south was Jerusalem. The northern tribes were conquered by the Assyrians in 722 B.C., and many Israelites were dragged off into captivity, and they never made a full comeback. Other Israelites were not taken off into captivity. They were left there in Samaria. And according to 2 Kings 17, the king of Assyria brought in people from pagan nations and had them live in Samaria and intermingle with the Israelites who were there. And at that point, something remarkable happened. Look at 2 Kings 17. Look down to verse 26. Verse 26 says, So the king of Assyria was told, The nations that you have carried away and placed in the cities of Samaria do not know the law of the God of the land. So remember, the king of Assyria took a lot of pagan nations, stuck them in Samaria, and they began to interact with the Israelites who were left there. And then we read this in the middle of verse 26. I don't know that I've ever seen this before. Maybe I just forgot about it. But it says, Therefore, he has sent lions among them, and behold, they are killing them because they do not know the law of the God of the land. Now, that's amazing, right? We have God sending lions in Samaria, consuming these pagan people who were there, influencing Israel for the worse. And so there's these lions among them, killing them. So they don't know what to do about this. Verse 27, then the king of Assyria commanded, send their one of the priests whom you carried away from there, in other words, somebody that you took from Samaria, take him back there, one of the priests, and let him go and dwell there and teach the law of the God of the land. Maybe if they do that, then the lions will stop eating them. Verse 28, so one of the priests whom they had carried away from Samaria came and lived in Bethel and taught them how they should fear the Lord. But every nation still made gods of its own and put them in the shrines of the high places that the Samaritans had made in every nation in the cities in which they lived. 
So in other words, it's not working. This priest was supposed to come back, teach them how to serve God and him alone, and yet the pagan cultures continued their pagan practices there in Samaria, Samaria and in the surrounding cities. Look down at verse 33. So they feared the Lord, but they also served their own gods after the manner of nations from, whom, uh, from among whom they had been carried away. Look down at verse 39. But you shall fear the Lord your God, and he will deliver you out of the hand of all your enemies. However, they would not listen, but they did according to their former manner. So these nations feared the Lord and also served their carved images. Their children did likewise, and their children's children as their fathers did, so they do to this day. Now listen, the Jews had their own problems. They were full of legalism, they were filled with pride, and they were placing an overemphasis on the Old Covenant as a means of saving grace. And yet the Jews of Jerusalem at least claimed to be pure at this point in history, the first century, John 8, to follow Yahweh and not intermarry or intermingle with other paganistic societies. And yet the Samaritans had that in their background. And because that was in their background, the Jews hated the Samaritans. They never really repented of their idolatry. And the Jews never forgave the Samaritans for their sin of intermarrying with these pagans, bringing idolatry into the northern kingdom. And a little bit later, when the Samaritans offered to rebuild the temple after Judah's exile to Babylon, 586, they came back a little 70 years after that, we understand that the Jews wanted to rebuild the temple. The Samaritans offered to help them out, and the Jews rejected their offer to work with them. And so the bitter rivalry between the two groups only intensified from that moment throughout the intertestamental period. And in the first century, uh, the Jews hated the Samaritans so much that they would take another route instead of traveling from Jerusalem up to Galilee, which would go right through Samaria, they would go around any way that they could, even if it was a little bit longer because they didn't want to walk through Samaria, the Jews didn't associate, associate with the Samaritans at all. That's where we read in John 4, we saw this months ago, I guess, where the Samaritan woman said to Jesus at the well, remember, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a, a woman of Samaria, for Jews have no dealings with Samaritans? But Jesus was here to reach the Samaritans and the Jews with the gospel. And so in that conversation with that lady, he's like, look, it's not about whether you're Jewish or a Samaritan. It's about knowing and understanding the gospel. The gospel is not about being Jewish. It's not about being from Samaria. It doesn't matter if you're from the establishment or from the outside. It doesn't matter if you're brought up in a Christian home or brought up with two unbelieving parents. We're all broken people and we're all in need of grace. There is no ethnicity that gets you to heaven. And so the idea here is they're trying to undercut Jesus by calling him a Samaritan, and this is why Jesus, I think, even throughout his time, is especially kind to Samaritans, why he's so kind to talk with this lady at the well. In fact, it's there that he reveals to him that he is the Messiah. This is why in Luke 10, when we talk about the parable of the Good Samaritan, that Jesus specifically uses a Samaritan to show these Jews that even a Samaritan can do good things. You might even say in actuality, in actuality, without Christ, there is no good Jew, there is no good Gentile, there's no good Israelite, there's no good Samaritan, there's no one good except God alone and His Son, Jesus Christ. You can only be made good in who you are 
as a believer, being born again, again, not holding on to your ethnicity. But since the Jews couldn't find any evil in what Jesus was doing, they tried to find fault with Jesus himself. They couldn't find fault ultimately with his teaching or with the miracles that he did and the way he loved people. So they just started attacking his person. They gave him the lowest insult they could think of by calling him a Samaritan. So in our culture today, I thought about listing out a lot of words that people call each other, and I just decided that wouldn't be edifying, right? But you get the idea, right? They're thinking of the nastiest, gnarliest word that they wanted to slur at Jesus to cut him down. That's what they're doing when they call him a Samaritan. And then they digress further. Look at verse 48. They also said, and you have a demon. Aren't you a Samaritan? Don't you have a demon? And so now they're going from this world to the spiritual world. They're going to the underworld, so to speak, trying to say basically that Jesus is demon-possessed. This isn't the first time they've made this accusation. John chapter 7, verse 20, the crowd answered, you have a demon who is seeking to kill you. Again, in John 10, verse 20, many of them said, he has a demon and is insane. Why listen to him? It's in Mark chapter 3, verse 22, that they said that Jesus was possessed by the devil. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, he is possessed by Beelzebul, and by the prince of demons, he casts out the demons. And so to say that someone was demon-possessed is equivalent to saying that that person is insane. What they are saying is that Jesus is mentally ill, that he is of an unsound mind. They are saying that Jesus is psychotic, that he's schizophrenic, and that he's gone mad. They're saying that Jesus is deranged, that he's demented and disturbed. By saying that Jesus has a demon, they're saying that Jesus has become unhinged, that he's unbalanced and unstable. They believe that Jesus has gone crazy, that he's raving mad, that he's gone bonkers. They believe that Jesus is foolish, idiotic, and senseless. They think that Jesus is an irrational, illogical lunatic. That's what they're saying. In verse 48, you're a Samaritan, you are possessed by a demon. Now, the Bible describes full well the activity, the actions, the words of those who are possessed, truly possessed with a demon. By the way, no believer can ever be possessed by a demon. Greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world, that you can't uh, be fully possessed. You might be influenced by demonic activity from the outside, but that would never happen in a true believer's inner man. And in the Bible, those who were demon-possessed often had no clothes, lived in graveyards, and were restrained with shackles. In fact, in the NASB, there's a man who describes his son who is demon-possessed. In Luke chapter 9, verse 39, he says, a spirit seizes him and he suddenly screams and it throws him into a convulsion with foaming at the mouth. And only with difficulty does it leave him, mauling him as it leaves. That's the description of the people in the Bible who really were demon-possessed. And so the question is, is Jesus acting like that? You need to know this morning that both the accusation of Jesus being a Samaritan and the accusation of him being demon-possessed are completely false. Jesus was born a Jew. He died a Jew, and he's the king of the Jews and the ultimate king of the whole world. Jesus is not demon-possessed, 
but rather he casts out demons, he controls the devil, and he is the unrivaled Lord of the heavens and the earth. And so what they're saying to Jesus is absolutely bogus. It's completely off-center. We also see here in your next blank that the Jews not only make these outrageous accusations, but they are just really seeking to dishonor Jesus. The Jews dishonor Jesus. Verse 49, Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father, and you dishonor me. I love how in the midst of inflammatory remarks, Jesus doesn't take the bait, unlike others that we know who enjoy doing that on Twitter. And from time to time, ridicule others with their words. Jesus gives an entirely different type of character. Jesus does not reply in angst or in frustration to these accusations. He never does. The Bible tells us in 1 Peter 2, 22 and 23, he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. And when he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. This is the character of our Lord. This is how Jesus was, not only on the cross, but throughout his entire ministry on earth. Jesus was always even-tempered, even when he made a whip and he threw the, 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 the uh, buyers and sellers out of the temple. I would say that was a logical, disciplinary action that was made in a way that would honor the Lord Jesus, that, that Jesus would honor his father, right? My father's house will be known as a house of prayer, not a den of thieves. And so I'm just saying that he's even-tempered, that he was not uh, possessed by a demon, is revealed in his calm speech, even at this moment. It, rather, these are the, the response of verse 49 is that of a humble man. It's that of a man who sought to honor his father in heaven. It was earlier in John chapter 5 that we read how Jesus constantly seeks to honor the father. So verse 49 says, um, but I honor my father. That's all he came to do, right? John 5, 19, truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing on his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing for whatever the father does, that the son does likewise. That's how Jesus honors the Father. He resembles him. He, he, he follows in the same vein. And one of the greatest ways for a son to honor his father would be to emulate the behavior of a father. So if you have a godly father who loves to get up early in the morning and open the Bible and pour over Scripture and spend time praying to God in heaven, and you see a two or three or four-year-old little boy, maybe start to emulate his dad, where he'll open his Bible and begin to read the Word of God, or at least act like he's reading it, and say his prayers to God in heaven, you would say that son is honoring his father. Or if you were to see a little girl acting like the mom, even if it's something as simple as baking or cooking around the house or, or helping host people in, in, in a home, you kind of see that sometimes in young girls. She's honoring the mom, who's, who's a beautiful homemaker and a beautiful part of what God has called a marriage to be, moms and dads loving and serving each other. And we would say that children honor their parents when they, when they walk in the same vein, obviously, hopefully in a, in a God-honoring way. I mean, another way that a son can honor the father is not just kind of copying them, but just simply in obeying him. That's why the scripture says in Ephesians 6, 1, children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right, honor your father and your mother. Kids, listen up to me this morning, that if you want to honor your mom and dad, you obey them. That's the best way that you could honor them is by obeying them. It's not just saying it, 
but it's putting it into practice, right? And the Proverbs teach us that another way a son can honor his father is just by listening, listening to his father's instruction uh, with the intent to, to put it into practice. It's Proverbs 1, 8 and 9. Hear, my son, your father's instruction, and forsake not your mother's teaching, for they are a graceful garland for your head and pendants around your neck. In other words, the proverb tells us, look, you need to listen to mom and dad. When you do that, that's honoring them, and that's the the best thing you could do. Or how about Proverbs 2, verse 1, my son, if you receive my words and treasure up my commandments within you. He goes on to say how it's better than seeking for hidden treasure is listening to the words of your mom and dad. And it's understood there that mom and dad are giving biblical instruction, the truth of the world and of the gospel and how to live life in a way that honors God. Proverbs 15, 20, a wise son makes a glad father, but a foolish man despises his mother. And so these all show us, again, ways that a son can honor his father. And so verse 49, when Jesus says, I don't have a demon, but I honor my father, Jesus is really fulfilling all of this perfectly. He, he, he always obeyed the father. He always sought to do the father's will. In fact, according to John 5, 23, Jesus' desire is that all may honor the son just as they honor the father. Whoever does not honor the son does not honor the father who sent him. We read in earlier in this chapter, 8, in verse 42, Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would love me, for I came from God, and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. The fact is, though, the Jews don't love God, and the Jews don't love Jesus, and neither does the world. I mean, the world that we live in does not honor God the Father or God the Son. In fact, one commentator wrote, quote, Nicknames, insulting epithets, and violent language are favorite weapons with the devil. When other means of carrying on his warfare fail, he stirs up his servants to smite with the tongue. Grievous indeed are the sufferings which the saints of God have had to endure from the tongue in every age. You know what he's saying? Just as these Jews are making fun of and mocking the Lord Jesus Christ, dishonoring him, even though Jesus just came to honor the Father, that's all he came to do. They're dishonoring him, they're calling him a Samaritan, they're calling him demon-possessed, the same will happen to you. When you stand for the Lord Jesus Christ in our political climate, don't expect to get a pat on the back. Okay? When you stand for the Lord Jesus Christ, expect people to mock you, expect people to hate you, and expect people to say that you're filled with hate speech. It used to be that the pastors were the good guys. And now, unless you're a flaming liberal endorsing and embracing the world's morality, then you're seen as someone who is a bigot, right? Someone who is a bad guy. And yet we understand this is what happens. It happened with the Jews, with Jesus. It happens today in the church. So the world seeks to dishonor God and to dishonor Christ, and to dishonor those who follow Him. And while the world seeks to dishonor Christ, and therefore dishonor the Father, God seeks to honor His Son by seeking His Son's glory. In fact, look at verse 50. Verse 50 says, Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it, and He is the judge. Here we can see that the Father seeks Christ's glory. Jesus says, I didn't come to seek my own glory. But there is one who seeks it, and that's the Father. I mean, think about that. Jesus did not come to toot his own horn, but to do the will of the Father. 
Jesus never sought to exalt himself, but to exalt the Father. Jesus is here to serve the Father, to glorify the Father, and to do the Father's will. And the main reason that God sent Christ into the world was not to gain glory for himself, though he should be glorified, and he is by the Father. He just came to do his Father's work. He came to get busy teaching us the gospel and getting ready and prepared to be that perfect sacrifice on the cross. He came to offer his life once to bear the sins of many. He came to be numbered with the transgressors that he may make intercession for the transgressors. He came to save his people from their sins. That's why Jesus came. He didn't come to make a big deal about himself. He came to make a big deal about his father and to do his father's will. And we could take a note from the book of Jesus to live in a similar way. It's not about you. It's not about you making a name for yourself or lifting up yourself or glorifying yourself. Even though Jesus was God and we are right to worship and glorify him, he never did that to himself. He always pointed to the father. And of course, the father points right back to the son. And that's what it's saying there in verse 49. There is one, or verse 50 rather, there is one who seeks it and he is the judge. In other words, God seeks Christ's glory. This word seeks means to ask for or to request, but it can also mean to demand. And I think that's the way it's used here. The father demands us to glorify Christ. We're obligated to glorify Christ. As Christians, we can't help but to glorify Christ. It's the spirit of Philippians 2, 9 through 11. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven, on earth, and under earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And so to glorify the Father is to glorify the Son. The Father glorifies the Son, and the Father is the judge. He has the ultimate say in what is right and what is wrong. He determines who goes to heaven and who goes to hell. He sets the record straight. Heaven is his throne, and the earth is his footstool, and our God will have his way, and his way is to glorify the Son. And Jesus is, in other words, he's saying, look, you better look back to God. You need to look to Yahweh. Yahweh is pointing to me. Yahweh is glorifying me. And you need to have that same disposition. And so let me just ask you this morning, is that your way today? Is your way to glorify the Son with your words, and with your speech, and with the way you interact with your family? Or is the day about you and about your goals and your desires. We all have goals and desires, but the idea is our, our, is our main goal to say, I just, I'm here to glorify the Son. When, when you woke up this morning, were you like, I just want to praise King Jesus. I want to be enthralled with Him. I want this day and every day of my life to belong to Him. Or sometimes do we get too quickly into like, oh, I got to get this done today and I got to get that done today. Are you paying homage to the Son? Are you bowing before the Son? Are you worshiping the Son? Are you adorning Him this morning? Are you seeking His glory? So not to recognize Jesus is to dishonor Him. And it's also true, number two, to keep Christ's words is to live forever. To keep Christ's words is to live forever. Verses 51 through 53, the next blank says this, the evidence of salvation. The evidence of salvation, verse 51, 
Jesus now fully in this conversation, truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. Let's just stop right there for a moment and just understand that salvation is not just head knowledge. Notice Jesus says there in verse 51, it's whoever keeps my word, he will never uh, taste, never see death. And so what we're learning here is that it's more than just believing, it's keeping. You say you believe, but you don't keep. It may be that you don't have eternal life. So what we're saying is, is that even demons believe, but they're not saved. That salvation is about repentance, and it's about turning from your sin and turning to Christ. Salvation is about abandoning all that you are and accepting all that Jesus is. Salvation is about coming to Christ with the intent of following Christ. And so while salvation is all by grace, if you're born again, you're born again to a new life in Christ. Turn with me to Matthew 9. 16 and 17, and you'll see this inferred here in this masterful illustration of Jesus talking about new wine and new wineskins. Matthew chapter 19, verses 16 and 17, Jesus says, no one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch tears away from the garment, and a worse tear is made. Neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skins burst, and the wine is spilled, and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wineskins, and so both are preserved. In other words, when God saves you, He doesn't expect you to try to fit Jesus into your old life. The wineskins of Jesus' day were made out of the skins of an animal, typically that of a sheep or a goat, and that was their form of, of a Nalgene water bottle, right? That was their thermos. That was their hydro flask. That's what they used to store the liquid in, this wine in. And it was a normal, common drink in the first century. And so what we see here is that you would never put new wine into an old wineskin. Not only is that mixing the new wine with the old wine, which is not to be done, but it also is because new wine expands as it ages. And so the new wine needs a new wineskin that has the elasticity to expand over time and not to burst. And such it is with the wine of the Spirit. When you are a believer, you need room to expand and grow. You need a new framework of living the Christian life. A new faith means new experiences, new habits, and new ways of thinking. It's 2 Corinthians 5.17, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, behold, the new has come. And so your old man has been replaced with your new man. Your outer man is now controlled with your inner man. Your flesh is now reined in by the Spirit dwelling inside of you. And so when Jesus says here, truly, truly, in 51, he's saying, listen up if anyone keeps my word. Again, I just want you to see that emphasis. Again, the, the invitation is open to all. It can be anybody, red, yellow, black, and white. They are all precious in His sight. It matters not if you come from a worldly background or from the church, if you're a man or a woman, rich or poor, poor a boy or a girl. The, the focus is here, keeping His Word. Now, again, don't misunderstand this. This is not teaching works righteousness. Jesus is not teaching here, you have to obey in order to be saved. Now, that's not what He's teaching. He's teaching, if you're truly saved, 
and you know the Father, then you'll do the works Abraham did, and you'll obey and serve and keep my word. It's consistent with what Jesus has been teaching throughout this gospel. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. All this to say that it is not only the one who believes in Jesus, but it's the one who perseveres in Jesus. It's not good enough just to say, I believe in Jesus. Jesus says, no, 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 you got to be keeping my word. Again, he's not teaching works salvation. He's teaching if you are truly saved by grace, then you will walk in that grace and you will have fruit in your life. It is impossible to be born again, but to be void of any good works. And there's a lot of people in our country today who would say, oh, you can be a Christian by just saying the prayer. If you just say the sinner's prayer, it matters not if you obey him or walk with him. You're born again because you have fire insurance. But if you listen to Jesus, he's like, yeah, you need to believe. That's how you're born again. But a true believer keeps my commandments. A true believer walks with me. A true believer saved by grace, Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, through faith, and it's not of your own doing. It is a gift of God. It's not of works so that no one can boast. But don't forget verse 10, Ephesians 2, 10, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So in other words, if somebody's claiming Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, and they're like, hey, man, I'm saved. It's all by grace. And they're living like the devil. And they don't love Christ. And it's demonstrated in their life of obedience, of pursuing godliness, of confessing their sin, of bearing the fruit of the Spirit. If you don't see any of that in their life, then it's like, look, they can't just claim their salvation card, right? It, it, it needs to be evident in a person's life. And this is what Jesus is saying to these Pharisees, these Jews. They're like, they're saying they know Yahweh. They're saying they know Abraham. They're saying that they're these righteous people. But Jesus is saying, you're not keeping my words. And since you're not keeping my words, you have no part of me. And so what we're really seeing is these Jews are, your next blank, they're the enemies of salvation. These Jews are the enemies of salvation. Verse 52 and 53, the Jews said to him, now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets, yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died and the prophets died? Who do you make yourself out to be? In other words, instead of these Jews saying, hey, Jesus, you're right. Thank you for showing us that it's not only about faith in God through a substitute, the Lamb of God, it's also about walking with him. Thank you for reminding us of that. We, we had switched those two things. And now we see that if we love Christ and walk with him, then we'll also keep his words. Instead of getting it, they completely reject him even further. And that's why they say in verse 52, now they use this language again. Now we know you have a demon. Before we said it, now we know you have a demon. And not only that, we know that what you're saying can't be true because you're saying if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. And yet Abraham died and the prophets died. You say if somebody keeps your word, they will never taste death. They only had a physical understanding of what Christ's words are saying. And we need to understand that this world is physical, but it is also spiritual. And if you don't have eyes to see and ears to hear, then you'll never sort out what it is Jesus is saying and what he means. 
And that can only happen by saving faith. Only God can enlighten the heart and the mind of a person so that you can see like, oh, I see what Jesus is saying. He's saying that even though the wages of sin is death, the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ. He's saying here, if you keep his words, while you might still die physically, we all will face death unless the Lord returns, but we have eternal life. And they're not getting that. These Pharisees had no ability to see the spiritual because they're only focused on the physical. Isn't that the world we live in? It's filled with materialism. It's filled with only what you can see and touch instead of understanding that the spiritual salvation that Christ speaks of is something you can't see. Not, not at least in our time, you could see Jesus and it could have seen the cross and the crucifixion and the resurrection, but now it's by faith. Even then it was by faith, right? The Pharisees can't see this. By, by being legalists, they look to the law to save them and therefore they're not saved. And since they were not saved, they could not understand what Jesus was saying. And that's why they respond like this by saying again that Jesus had a demon, meaning that he's insane. They say that Abraham and the prophets were all faithful Jews And their lives have come and gone, and instead of listening to Jesus and comprehending him, they ridicule him. And that's why in verse 53, are you greater than our father Abraham, who died, and the prophets who died? Who do you make yourself out to be? How ironic. They had insulted Jesus, and now they're trying to make him look stupid by saying that Abraham has died, and the prophets have died, and they were godly men, and are you saying that you're better than them? Of course Jesus is better than them right? I mean, in the vernacular, it's like they're saying, who do you think you are? You think you're all that, don't you? Who are you, Mr. Universe? You know, that's what they're saying to him, and the only problem is it's true. Jesus is Mr. Universe. He is better than Abraham. There's even no comparison to Jesus and any of the prophets, and that's what the book of Hebrews is all about, that Jesus is superior to all If you were here a couple of weeks ago, you heard Dr. Barrick beautifully teach that from Hebrews chapter 4. And we understand that the book of Hebrews is all about how in in long ago, in many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature who upholds the universe by the word of his power after making purification for sins he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high having become as much superior to angels as the name that he has inherited is more excellent than theirs i mean if you could read the whole book of hebrews you'd be reminded that jesus is better right he's better than angels he's better than abraham he's better than moses he's better than the prophets he's better than aaron he's better than the old covenant Jesus is better because Jesus is God. He's better because only he can save you through the cross. He's better because only he can forgive you by his blood. He's better because only he can bring you to heaven. He's better because only he can make meaning out of your life. Only he can give you purpose in how you live. Only he can satisfy you. The law does not love you. Abraham doesn't know you and the prophets can't save you. You need Christ, and he is much more than all that you could ever need. Our joy comes from him, and so it's almost sad that they're asking this ridiculous question again. Are you thinking you're better than Abraham? Of course he is. He is the great I am, and that's why, number three, we'll dive into it here in just a couple of moments, to know Jesus is to see him 
for who he really is. Who is Jesus? Jesus is humble and he speaks the truth. He's humble and he speaks the truth. Verses 54 and 55, Jesus answered, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God, but you have not known him. I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you, but I do know him and I keep his word. Again, Jesus is repeating in verse 54 what he's already said in verse 50, I do not seek my own glory. Again, the point that Jesus is trying to make is he's not doing his own thing. He's not trying to separate himself from the ministry of the Father, but rather to connect all that he is doing and all that the Father has already been doing. This is not some new pop-up ministry with new ideas and creative ways to fit into the culture. No, this is the God-man, Jesus Christ, being the master teacher, the good shepherd, and the lover of our souls. And if Jesus had been bringing glory to himself, then he would be no different than a false teacher. He would be no different than a cult leader. He would be no different than these Jewish rabbis who prided themselves in their own boasting and their own bragging and in their outward piety. And yet, Jesus like, it's not about me. It's about the Father. The Jews claim to know God, but they don't really know the Father, for if they knew the Father, they would recognize His Son. The Father loves His Son. The Father glorifies His Son. It's Acts 3.13, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers glorified His servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate, when he had decided to release him. The father glorifies Jesus while the Jews and the leaders of the Jews delivered him to Pilate and formed false witnesses about him to have him condemned to death. The father glorifies the son by appointing him as the high priest. The father glorifies the son by referring to him. Even in the Old Testament, he says, you are my son. And he gives them these two titles that you can read about in Hebrews 5, that he points him as the high priest, and he also says, you are my son. These two titles of high priest and you are my son come from the book of Psalm. And both titles are demonstrating the subordination of the son to the father. Both titles, you are my son and you are the high priest, show that he's here to serve the father, to be a mediator, to lead us to the father, and he's the father's son. So he's showing subordinates, but neither title son or high priest, neither title, diminishes the deity of Christ and the equality of the Trinity. Jesus didn't exalt himself to the position of high priest, but God appointed him to that place. Jesus wasn't the first one who claimed to be God's son. God said that when he said in Psalm again, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. And so the father is pleased with his son. The Father sent the Son. The Father has now received His Son back into heaven as the glorified Christ. And in verse 55, Jesus is saying to not say that. He's like, look, you have not even known Him. You don't know the Father. I have. I know Him. And if I were to say that I do not know Him, I would be a liar like you. So earlier, remember He said, you guys are liars. You say you know the Father. You say you know Abraham. You say you're of Him. You're not. You're of your father, the devil. And if I don't acknowledge the fact that I know the Father, that I am one with the Father, then I would be a liar. So I can only speak what is true. I can only speak the truth. I can't lie. 
I'm not going to lie to you guys and act like I'm not who I am. I am who I am, right? And we'll get into next week how it is that Abraham could, uh, could, could have seen Jesus. We didn't get to, to get here today, but it, you'll see there where it says that Abraham saw his day, right? Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. The question is, how did Abraham see Jesus? That's the question we'll look at next week. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the opportunity just to dive in today and spend some, some good time looking at a rich Christology of who Christ is. We know that Christ was not a Samaritan, and we know that Christ was not demon-possessed, even though our world mocks the Lord Jesus and his teaching. Help us to hold firm. Help us to follow Christ's example. Help us to seek not to bring glory to ourselves, but glory to our Father in heaven who showed us how to glorify the Son by listening to Him and by keeping His words and by obeying Him and paying homage to the Son. And I pray that all of us this morning would be even more acutely aware of the presence of Jesus Christ in our lives, that we would love Him and honor Him and that we would never push back against Scripture, our principles of Scripture that, that point us to where it's not about us, and it's not about this life, it's about the life to come, it's about knowing Christ, it's about serving Him and serving others, it's about denying ourselves, taking up our cross daily and following Him, it's about loving Him, worshiping Him with all that we are, and so I pray that you would help us to do that today. God, we want to honor the Son, forgive us for the times in our lives when we don't honor you, help us to have a, a heart that is focused on the glory of Christ, that we would worship and obey, and it's in Christ's name we pray, amen.